You can open in your Bibles tonight to the book of Romans, chapter 4. And if you need a Bible tonight, just raise your hand and the ushers are ready and waiting, armed and loaded, to pass off Bibles to you so that you can follow along. In the study. Let's again just ask God to do what He wants to do. He wants to speak to us more than we want Him to speak to us. Father, we, uh, we just thank You so much for this eternal Word. It's alive. It's living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, joint and marrow, and it's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Father, we pray that the Word of God would have free course in our lives tonight. That you would accomplish, Lord, what you've set forth to when you laid down this clear instruction. Lord, you knew that each of us would be here tonight to hear these things. And so we pray, Lord, that you would tune us in. Give us ears to hear what the Spirit would say. And let your Spirit speak clear and loud to our hearts tonight. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans chapter 4. Imagine with me for a minute that you were at one point in your life a tenant at a middle-scale condominium complex. And in addition to your monthly rent and the utilities that you had to pay, you also had some other responsibilities. You were responsible to you know, cut the grass out in front of your entryway and make sure that it was clear and and free of any excess debris or anything that would be unsightly to look upon. You were also responsible to make sure that your driveway and the area in front was clear of snow in the wintertime. And there were just some excess contractual agreements that you were responsible for as a member of this condominium complex. But it happened that in the course of time, you kind of grew financially and, you know, you found a house. And so you moved out of the condo complex and you purchased your own piece of land and got the keys to your own house, you know, and you kind of moved up in that sense, you know, to to a greater glory, to a better place to live. Now, what if three years after moving into this house, you got a letter from the condominium complex And they wrote you a letter, and and in it they say something like that, you know, the board of trustees here has been uh, notified that you're failing to keep up with your contractual responsibilities. We've received some complaints about the grass that is beginning to now, you know, overgrow the area in front of your front door, and the, the various child, uh, you know, debris things, you know, the swings and the slides are, are, are piling up in your property. And, and we've just received many complaints about your failure to comply with your contractual uh, obligations. You know, and, and if you want to be in good standing, if you want to stay in the good graces of this establishment, then you better get going and keep up with your, you know, responsibilities and the things that you are supposed to do. Now, if you still lived in this condo complex, that would be a source of great stress to you. Because you would say, oh no, when am I going to find a time to do these things? I can't do, this is just too much, it's insurmountable, all the amount of responsibilities. And and your heart rate would begin to race and you'd feel yourself getting tense because of all the things that you have to do. But because you no longer live there, Because you're no longer under that contractual agreement, having moved out, having left the establishment, instead of stress, it just brings a smile. (laughs) Some guy has to pick up his stuff, you know, and they they, they made a mistake in this whole thing. And you just kind of smile and you throw out the thing. Why? Because you're no longer bound to the terms and conditions of that contract. It's null and void from the time that you moved out and you're no longer, you know, uh, obligated to those things. Who cares? It's no big deal. Now, in our progression as we move through the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul has just made a radical claim about a new contract or a new covenant that man can have to be in a right standing before a holy God. 
Back in chapter 3, verse 21 that we studied last week, Paul says, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is manifested. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness from God, which is by faith in Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. All of mankind was subject to this contractual obligation that they had with God. As God stood upon Mount Sinai and spoke audibly in the hearing and audience of the whole world, he gave forth the law. Ten commands. Ten things that man must live by and keep and do perfectly throughout his entire life if he's to be accepted by and brought into fellowship with God. But man wasn't able to keep up those things. Upon receiving that, the palms of mankind as a whole began to sweat. The stress levels began to rise because it didn't take long for man to realize that he wasn't able to keep up under the burden and the weight of keeping that law. And now Paul, as he addresses these Roman Gentile people, he says to them, look, God has made a new way. There's a whole new contract. There's a whole new covenant that God has established that isn't based upon the law in keeping of these rules, regulations, and deeds to be in right standing before God. But there's a new way. Through faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who spilled his blood to pay for the sins that you and I incurred, we can be brought into this new relationship with God where we are accepted in him, not because of what we do, but because of what he's already done for us. And so he concludes this claim in verse 28 there of chapter 3 by saying, therefore we conclude that a man is justified, and again, that means to be declared innocent, just as if I'd never sinned, justified, by faith without the deeds of the law. He draws a clear distinction between these two contracts, between these two covenants. The law, which rests upon my ability and my power to perform its deeds and demands, and faith on the other side, which rests in my belief in what Jesus Christ has accomplished on the cross on my behalf when he paid for my sins and yours with his blood. There's two different contracts and that we have access to God through this new covenant that's by faith, believing in the purchase of God and shedding the blood of his son to redeem our lives from the grave. Well, if we're thinking like the audience that Paul is addressing is thinking, if you're like me, at this point I'm saying to myself, well, you know what, I understand what it means to be justified by the law. I understand the terms and conditions of that contract. Here's what God says he expects of me, and if I can perform and do the things that he wants, well, then I'll be justified. I understand that. But this new contract that Paul is presenting, this faith in Jesus Christ, that to me seems a little bit obscure. What exactly does that mean? How, how does that flesh out? What does it look like to just believe in Jesus? Because it seems like it's way too broad. I mean, it's kind of like this big, huge belief blanket that he's kind of throwing out there and just saying, just believe and you'll be saved. So what does it mean to be saved by just simply believing in Jesus Christ? What does it mean to be justified by faith? It sounds obscure. And that's the question that the Apostle Paul knows is going through the hearts and the minds of those who he's writing to. And so he takes the time in chapter 4 to answer that question. What does it mean to believe in Jesus Christ and to be justified by faith in him alone? So as we come into chapter 4, the Apostle Paul is going to give us eight or so defining characteristics of what it means to be saved by believing in Jesus Christ, or to be declared righteous by God simply by believing in Christ. What does that mean? Eight things. The first four are somewhat generic. 
somewhat defining, somewhat instructive, just to kind of help us understand what it means. And then the last four are more specific and demanding, more kind of introspective as he turns it to us and says, well, this is what it means to you individually. The first four, what it means broadly, definitively. The last four, what does it mean for you individually? And so he begins, what does it mean to believe in Jesus Christ? The first thing that Paul tells them and tells us is that it is absolutely distinct and separate from the law. That to be justified by faith is not part of the law. It isn't an extension of the law in that old contractual system, but that it is completely separate, a totally different entity altogether. In verse 1, he says, What shall we say then that Abraham our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found? For if Abraham were justified by works, and when he says the word works, it should always trigger in your mind automatically he's talking about the law, the works of the law, the fulfilling of the deeds or works of the law. If Abraham were justified by the deeds or works of the law, then he has whereof to glory. He has something to boast about, to brag about. He can stand before mankind collectively and say, I've done it. I've kept it. I've met the standard, the holy righteous requirements that God has upon my life. I did it and you didn't. (laughs) He says, if that were the case, then Abraham would have something to boast of, but not before God. But what does the scripture say? That Abraham believed God and that it was counted unto him for righteousness. That there's a difference here. There's a difference between the works of the law, which is something that you and I do, something that Abraham would do, and faith, which is something that God did and that you're simply believing in it. You're believing in something that someone else did. That's faith. See? Now, he elaborates on this in verses 13 through 16. If you have your Bible, again, just glance over to verse 13 because he kind of broadens this division a little bit in these verses. He says, for the promise that he should be the heir of the world, speaking of what God told Abraham, was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. The promise that God gave him wasn't, contingent upon his performance but it was simply given to him up for grabs for him to either believe or not to believe and abraham chose to believe it therefore it wasn't the law it was faith for if they which are of the law be heirs then faith is made void and the promise is made of none effect if god makes you a promise he says but the promise is contingent on your performance well then it's not a promise it's a debt You have to keep up your side of the bargain and God's going to just fulfill and pay forth what he said he would owe you if you did it. And he says, that's not the way it went. There was no contingency. There was no law or deed that Abraham was to keep and do. It was simply faith. God made a promise. Abraham believed it. Because the law, he says in verse 15, worketh wrath. For where no law is, there is no transgression. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be by grace to the end that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to that which is of the law, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. He says the law, this contract that didn't work, that wasn't intended to ever bring man into righteousness, he says that the law only works wrath. The product of this contract is not righteousness and eternal life, but what it produces is wrath and judgment from God. Why? Because all the law does is reveal that you and I are sinners. And once it's revealed that you and I are sinners, then we have to answer for our sin. Well, why didn't you honor your father and your mother? Why did you take the Lord's name in vain? Well, why did you steal whatever it was that you stole? I saw that there was lust in your heart towards your neighbor's possessions and your neighbor's wife and towards your neighbor's goods. So how do you answer for those things? See, the law only reveals my sin, which then invokes the wrath and the judgment of a holy God. So the law could never work righteousness. The law only reveals wrath. 
But faith in the promise of God, he says, yields grace. Verse 16 again. It is of faith that it might be by grace. The law and faith do not come from the same fountain. Because if they did, then the water would taste the same. But the water from the fountain of the law is bitter and produces wrath. And the water from the fountain of grace produces forgiveness and salvation. They are completely and absolutely distinct and not to be confused with each other. They are two separate contracts, just like the letter you get from that condominium complex years after you've moved out. It no longer applies. And that's the first thing that Paul says about this law as he brings this explanation to them at the beginning of chapter 4. The second thing that he says about this righteousness that comes through faith is that it is imputed and not earned. Look with me at verse 3. He says, For what saith the Scripture? Now, if you want answers about the things of God, that's a really good place to look. Don't go to the Christian bookstore. Don't call up the Christian radio station. Don't even talk to the Christian person. Open your Bible. Paul says, Let's look what the Bible says about this. What saith the scripture? He says, Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now this word counted, if it's on the screen in the King James, the word there is counted. You might have in your translation the word imputed. Or you might have the word reckoned. Or laid to his account. It's a word that Paul uses 11 times in this chapter. Eleven times in this 25 verses, Paul uses this word imputed or reckoned or counted. It's translated three different ways. In verse 3, he uses the word counted. In verse 4, he uses the word reckoned. In verse 5, he uses again counted. In verse 6, it's imputed. In verse 8, it's impute. In verse 9, it's reckoned. In verse 10, it's reckoned. In verse 11, it's imputed. And then in verses 22, 23, and 24, it's all imputed. But it's the same exact word in the Greek language. It's the word logizohami. I did it. Whew. Been practicing that one all day, you know. Someone will come up afterwards and be like, no, no, it was logid, you know, or something. But no, it's the Greek word. And what it literally means is to put to the account of. To put to the account of. To reckon something as yours. In other words, you log on to your internet banking system one day, and it says zero, and you do nothing at all, but somebody imputes some cash in your name, and they put it there in the account, and the next day you go on, and this has been credited to your name. That's what the word means. It says that in verse 3, it was counted or reckoned or imputed unto him for righteousness. Now, To him that worketh, verse 4, is the reward not reckoned or imputed by grace, but of debt. See, if your salvation, if your righteous standing before God is based upon your performance, what you've done, well then it has nothing to do with God showing you mercy and giving you grace. You've earned it. And what do we all know about hours that we work? That we better get our wages. Right? That's why we work. We're working to earn wages. But if somebody gives you wages for that which you did not labor, then they've imputed to you a gift by grace. And Paul is saying that this righteousness that comes through faith is not something that you can earn. You cannot earn it. Because God, the Bible says, is a debtor to no man. And he will not be indebted to you. And you can never be righteous enough to meet his holy standard. But if you humble yourself and come to him through the blood of his son Jesus, then it's his good pleasure, the Bible says, to impute to you righteousness. Which means that to your account in heaven, the word justified is listed there under your name. That all of the sin, all of the debt that you incurred, all of the unrighteousness that exists in your life in reality is erased, put upon the back of his son, And the righteousness of God is laid to your account free of charge. It's reckoned. It's imputed. It's accounted to you. But it is not earned. Righteousness through faith is imputed, not earned. And it's very important that Paul communicates this to those that he's writing to, that they understand this. The third thing 
that Paul says about this righteousness that comes from faith is that it's completely undeserved. Look at verse 6 or verse 5. He says, But to him that worketh not, but believes on him that justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted, or again, again, imputed, it's that same word to lay to your account, it's counted for righteousness. Even as David also describes the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputes righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute. Again, same word, sin. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Now, when he quotes this, he's literally quoting from the Psalms. Remember when Paul said a second ago, let's search the scriptures. Let's see what the Bible says about this. And first he talks about Abraham and now he references David. He's quoting from Psalm chapter 32, verses 1 and 2. Now, he doesn't quote it exactly verbatim as it is in Scripture, but he he gets the right idea. Let me read to you what David wrote in Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. He says, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. Now, at first listen, at first glance, that kind of seems redundant, doesn't it? Blessed is the man unto whom, you know, the Lord, whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, the man to whom the Lord will not impute iniquity. It it sounds like he's waxing poetic and he's just kind of using other words to say the same thing. Transgression, sin, iniquity, it's all the same thing and he's just saying it's not applied. No, 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 no. This is very calculated. He does this on purpose. Why? Because he uses three different words, and those three different words have three different meanings. He says, blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven. Do you know what transgression is, according to the scriptures? It's willful, purposeful disobedience. Which means that God draws a line in the sand right in front of your eyes, and he says, do not cross this line. And you look God right in the eye, and you walk across the line. And you say, what are you going to do about it? That's what transgression means. It's willful, on-purpose, calculated disobedience. And David said, blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven. How could God forgive something that's done so pointedly and aggressively against him like that? But yet David says there's hope of that. The second word that David uses there in Psalm 32 is sin. He said, whose sin is covered. The word sin is a word that is more generic. It means unwilling sin. You know how it is. That's traffic sin. You know, you never wake up in the morning and you're like, you know what? I'm just going to give in to my traffic sin today. And I am just going to cut off everybody that I possibly can. And anybody that slights me in any way, man, I am going to just run them off the road. Nobody does that. That just kind of happens. That comes out naturally. You know, you're driving along and there's somebody and, you know, they, they've got the cruise control on and they're coming up on you in the left lane and they're going about one mile an hour slower than you. And then you're coming up behind someone and you know that they're not going to let you in first. You know, so you're there and all of a sudden you feel your blood pressure go up and, you know, you're, you start to. And then they're going, so now you got to jam on the gas and you got to get in front or you got to slam on the brake and get right on them. You know, there's something they have to pay for this. I've seen you guys do this. (laughs) That's just sin. It's sin. You know, we're not there and, you know, we know, you know, it's just something that springs up. Somebody says the wrong thing and we, it comes out, you know, our spouse just says, could you pick that up? And you know, it just comes out, you know, it's sin. It's just, I didn't mean to. I wish I didn't say that. You ever do that? You say something, you go, I shouldn't have said that, I shouldn't have said that, I shouldn't have said that, I shouldn't have said that. He says it can be forgiven. It's forgiven. And then the third word he uses is iniquity. Iniquity is just a word that simply means uncleanness. You take a shower, and then you go to sleep. What happens when you wake up in the morning? You stink. We are, do you know this? I, don't, I hope I'm not telling this for the first time. Do you know we are unclean? 
We're just unclean. If we go without washing ourselves daily, we start to stink. There's just this rotting that's taking place within us that's trying really hard to get to the outside. And it happens real easily. Our attitudes become foul. You know, our moods become grouchy. You know, these things happen. It's just iniquity. It's just this general uncleanness that emanates from us without us doing anything at all to produce it. It's just there. And that's the word he uses when he says, whose iniquities are not imputed to them. Transgression, sin, iniquity. The whole broad gamut of uncleanness in the eyes of God can be forgiven according to the scriptures. But understand this, saint. Understand, you don't deserve it. And neither do I. Because every one of us has looked God in the eye and walked across that line that he's drawn in the sand and we say, what are you going to do about it if you're even real? And yet God still extends to us the opportunity to believe in what he's done for us through his son and to forgive us of our sin that they might be blotted out. We don't deserve it. We don't deserve it in the very least. And then he goes on to say that it's for everyone. In verses 9 and 10, he says, Cometh this blessedness then, the blessedness of being forgiven, the blessedness of having this righteousness given to you free of charge, does this blessedness then come only upon the circumcision? When he says that again, he's talking about the Jews. Is this promise, this gift, was it only intended to be a benefit to the Jewish people, God's chosen by their own declaration? Or upon the uncircumcision also. That would be the rest of the world. This gift, this blessedness, who is it for? Who qualifies to get into this new covenant with God, this new contract? For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. It was something that was imputed to him. He was given this righteousness. How was it then reckoned? When he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision? Not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. What's that? What's he saying? Listen, Abraham was a citizen of Babylon at the time that God called him and gave him the promise. He was just an ordinary man living in the most satanic city in the world. A city that was plagued by idolatry and uncleanness. And here's one man and God comes to this man and he gives him a promise. And Abraham believes that promise that God gives him prior to him ever being circumcised, ever being called a Hebrew, ever having even had a single son that would carry on the name of Judaism or the circumcision or of Israel. God gives him this promise and he believes it. But when he was given the promise, was he a Jew? He was not. He was a Babylonian. He was a Gentile. That's the case that Paul's making here. He wasn't a Jew. Therefore, this promise was not given to the Jews. It was given to the world. So then, will you say, well, wait a minute. Abraham was the first Jew. That's right. Paul goes on to say in verse 11 that he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of faith, which he had yet being uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised. That's you and me by allegory. We're Gentiles. That righteousness might be imputed unto them or unto us also. See, righteousness before God does not come by keeping the law. It comes by believing in him through faith. Abraham was a citizen of Babylon, not already called and set apart as a Jew at the time that he believed God. See, so he says to us, this is available to everyone. So he gives to us these defining characteristics, these things that describe for us what the righteousness of the law is all about. He says, that, or of, the, of faith. He says that it is absolutely distinct and separate from the law. He says that it is righteousness um, that is imputed and not earned. He tells us that it is completely undeserved and that it's available to everyone. This righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. But now he kind of goes in a little bit deeper with his surgeon's scalpel, with his flashlight, and he addresses us personally. He turns it to you and me now. 
as he's talking about the subject of faith, as he's challenging us and asking us if we possess this saving faith, saving faith, if we really have belief that imputes righteousness to us, he puts flesh and blood on it, and he delves a little bit deeper into Abraham's adventure, and he asks us the question, do you believe? Do you have this saving faith? Though you cannot be justified by the works of the law, Is belief just a blanket statement of saying, I believe, historical Jesus, I'm right there with you? Or is there a little bit more to it, perhaps, than that? The first thing that he says as he moves on is that this faith is not something that's invisible. It's not something that's completely intangible. Again, in verse 11, he says that he received the sign of circumcision. A seal of the righteousness of faith. That there was something evident, something outward that could be examined and understood. That set him apart. That made him distinct. That proved what was really taking place within him was real. A seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had, yet being uncircumcised. He had the faith before there was ever a seal or a sign performed within him. But yet that sign came That seal, that outward evidence was present after the fact to prove that what was going on inside was really real. Because it's too easy to just say, oh yeah, I believe. The whole world says they believe. 80% of the United States says they believe. And yet as we look around at our society today, it is far from 80% sanctified. Which means that there's people that are carrying that blanket statement of faith around but yet there's no seal or sign of the work of God in their lives at all. It's just a name. It says that it was a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had, yet being uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised, that the righteousness might be imputed unto them also. And then in verse 12, he says, and the father of circumcision to them who are not of the circumcision only. That's you and me. But what are we? If we're not circumcised, then he says, those who walk in the steps of that faith of our father Abraham, which he had yet being uncircumcised. He says, circumcision doesn't save you. Circumcision doesn't set you apart. Going through the outward cutting away in the aspect of what circumcision was and represented, that does not save you. But yet he says that there is something, a seal, a sign that takes place in your life that proves that something has happened. And that is that you walk in the steps of Abraham's faith. That's what he says. That you walk in the steps of Abraham's faith. There is a sign. There is something that just as circumcision was a real physical mark that was evident on Abraham's person, that there is also a real physical mark that will be evident in our lives as well. It's not a physical mark like circumcision, but rather it's a spiritual walk that can be observed and seen. Do you understand? He says, we'll walk in the steps of that faith of our father, Abraham. You know, I was thinking about Samson. This man of whom the Bible talks about this great strength. And I'm always impressed by the things that we read about Samson. And I don't think that he was as he's depicted in the pictures. I don't think that he was like Arnold in his prime. You know, just full of bulging biceps, you know, and monster calves, you know. And the reason I think that is because nobody could figure out where his strength came from. I mean, here's a guy that would take the jawbone of a donkey and he would kill a thousand people by himself. They would come against him and he would win. A guy who they would think they have him trapped, locked into the city. And he would go up to the gates of the city, which were usually 20 foot high cast iron gates that were bolted into pillars of rock. And he would lift up this entire gate, rip it out of the ground, and then carry it up a hill and leave it there. And then look at him and go, ha! I mean, this guy just had this incredible supernatural strength. And yet they could never figure out where it came from, which meant he probably looked like Pee Wee Herman. You know, he probably was really skinny and scrawny, and, and yet he would just do these supernatural things. They could never figure it out. 
And, and they even hired this woman, Delilah. And you know the story. You know, she seduces him and he kind of falls in carnal love with her and this kind of thing. And, and she does what women do best. She weeps. She gets under his skin. If you really loved me, you would tell me what is the source of your strength. And he lies to her. He keeps telling her these other things. Ah, you know, if they, if they tied me up with new vines that weren't dried out yet, I would be weak like everyone else. And so quickly she says, come on and tie him up with these new vines. So he wakes up and she says, Samson, the Philistines are here. He breaks out all these vines, you know, and, and, and throws them out. And he's just like, huh, where'd these vines come from? Oh, well. And Delilah says, you lied to me. You don't love me. If you loved me, you would tell me. What is the source of strength? He says, oh, you know, if they tied me up with new ropes, brand new, right from Home Depot, crisp, I would be weak like every other man. She says, oh, thank you, Samson. Go to sleep. And she puts him to sleep. She ties him up with these new ropes. She says, Samson, Samson, the Philistines be upon thee. He breaks up, rips out of these ropes. He says, the Philistines run like scared rats. You know, and, and she, she starts to weep. You lied to me. Now, you would think at this point, he'd be starting to go, wait a minute. But no, he was really stupid. Strong, but really stupid. You keep lying to me, Samson. If you really love me, you would tell me what is the source of your strength. And so then he says, if they weave the seven locks of my hair into a weaver's beam, then I would be weak like any other man. Thank you, Samson. Go to sleep. I love you so much. He puts him to sleep. She weaves the seven locks of his hair. Samson stands in the Philistines. He gets up. There's a big weaver's beam on his head. He scares the Philistines away, you know, and he's strong just like every other time. Now, something's fishy here. I can't figure it out, but my head feels a little bit heavy, you know. (laughs) You lied to me again. What is it? What is the source of your strength? And then finally, after all of the nagging and the crying and, you know, the coercing, he finally says, if they cut my hair and I look like every other man, I will certainly lose my strength. And she knew as soon as he said it that this time he was telling the truth. If I lose my distinction, if I lose the thing in my life that sets me apart from everyone else, if that distinction between every other professor, between every other citizen of this planet and me, the thing that sets me apart, if that is taken away, then I will be weak like any other man. And so she puts him asleep. And she rips away his distinction. She cuts off his hair. And it says that the Philistines came and she said, Samson, Samson, the Philistines be upon thee. And Samson woke up and he supposed that he would scare them off as at other times, but that he knew not that the Lord had departed from him. And they bound him and then they blinded him and then they imprisoned him and they put out his eyes. What was the secret of his strength? What was the source of his great power? It was in his distinction. It was in the fact that there was something that set him apart. He was to be a Nazarite from his mother's womb. He was to be separated unto the Lord. That there was supposed to be a difference between the way that he lived and the way that he walked and the way that everybody else was carrying themselves out throughout the world. And it was a source of great strength to him. Supernatural ability. But when that was gone... He just became like everyone else and there was no strength in his life to be anything else. There are many professing Christians in the world today that say they are saved. They say they have faith. But yet there's no distinction. There's no difference between them and anybody else in the world. And the result of that is that there's also no power. There's no spiritual reality. There's no light that emanates from them. There's no There's no glory. The kabod, the weight is missing. It's gone. Why? Because they're just like everybody else. They say they have faith, but they don't walk in the steps of faithful Abraham. They say they're of the circumcision. I'm a Christian. But yet they don't walk. They don't demonstrate it. It's just a name. It has an appearance. See, faith is not blind faith. It's not professed faith. It's active faith. It looks like something. It's going somewhere. It has something, it has feet attached to it. It's carrying it. And that's what Paul is beginning to bring out in this, that those that are truly righteous because of their faith, they walk in the steps of faithful Abraham. For the promise that he should be heir of the world, verse 13, was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if they which are of the law be heirs, then faith is made void and the promise of none effect. Because the law worketh wrath. For where no law is, there is no transgression. 
Therefore, it is of faith that it might be by grace to the end that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not to that only which is of the law, not only to the circumcision, not only to the Jews, but also to that which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. That includes you and me as well. As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations. Now, he's going to put flesh on this. And I love this about the Bible, is that the Bible doesn't just give us, you know, these facts and these, you know, bits of information about a topic, but the Bible in many ways is like a picture book. Remember when you were a kid and you were at the library time and, the, you know, they would hold the book skillfully in a way I can't do and they would put it there so that you could see the words on one side and then the picture on the other side? Paul is doing that to you. Do you realize that this is just the children's book? Because what he has just done is he has just given you the concept and now he's going to give you the picture. As he looks into Abraham's faith and what it was, what does it look like for you and me now to have the kind of faith that Abraham has? Well, it starts with a promise. There has to be something for him to believe, which is given in verse 17. He says, as it is written... I have made thee a father of many nations. Now pause right there. Because God gave that promise to Abraham long before Abraham ever was the father of even one child. But notice something about that, that God speaks of it as though it's something that happened in the past. He says, I have made thee a father of many nations. Well, wait a minute, Lord. I don't even have a single son. How are you saying that you have already made me the father of many nations? There's a promise implied, a future that's already been foreseen and foreperformed by God. But Abraham has seen none of it, and yet God's telling Abraham what he's done. I have already made you a father of many nations. Before him whom he believed, even God, who quickens the dead and calls those things which be not as though they were. In other words, God has just called something upon Abraham's life that doesn't even exist yet, and God says it as if it's already done. He calls those things which are not as though they already were. I have made thee a father of many nations. Now that's the promise that God made to him. Abraham believed it, and that faith was then imputed for righteousness. But, Was it something that Abraham just that day took a hold of and said, all right, it's done? No, no, no. Don't you wish Abraham woke up the next day and it was already done? Doesn't Abraham wish that he woke up the next day and it was already done? That already he had seven grandsons and the thing was already in full swing and it was going down? That's not what happened. Read on. Verse 18. He says, who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations according to that which is spoken, so shall thy seed be. Now listen, because this is where it gets very personal. This is where it becomes between you and God to just, you listen, because God is looking at you right now and God is saying to you that saving faith, the kind of faith that produces righteousness in your life is a faith that is evidenced by, first of all, hope, When everything seems hopeless. Hope when everything seems hopeless. Abraham was 75 years old when God met him and gave him that promise. 75. How old are you, Everett? 78. Sorry, I hope I didn't embarrass you. I figured you wouldn't wouldn't mind. So, picture Everett given a promise of God. (laughs) Everett, stand up. I don't mean, I know you're not embarrassed. That's why I asked. Okay, Everett. (laughs) Everett, you are going to be the father of many nations. (laughs) Problem is, you can be seated. Everett doesn't have any kids. And here's God now giving him this promise that he's going to be the father of many nations. Not just that he's going to have one. He's 75 years old and he's completely childless. Well, some time passes. He's just one man in a nation full of pagans. Who is he to have obtained this promise? A a year later, he still doesn't have any children. At that point, perhaps he's thinking, well, maybe I just ate some really bad food. And I just, I don't know what I was seeing or what I was thinking, but I'm going to have kids. Well, no, not just one year, but 13 years goes by or 11 years goes by. 
And Abraham is now 86 years old and he still has no kids. He's not getting any younger. Time isn't going backwards. God hasn't come to him and, and, and done or performed any of the things that God's going to perform. He's 86 at this point, And now his wife is just 10 years younger. So she's 76. And he still has no children. Oh, so he comes up with this great idea. Oh, God, why didn't I think of this? And you know the story. He talks Hagar and Sarah into this thing. He has a child with the maidservant, Hagar, and Ishmael is born, and Abraham thinks he's well on his way. Man, God, you came through. I just didn't understand how you were going to do it. Well, guess what? 13 more years goes by. And Abraham is now 99 years old. And it says that the Lord appeared unto Abraham. And he says, Abraham, I've got good news for you. I know it's been 24 years since I came to you and told you that you were going to be the father of many nations. But about this time next year, you're going to have a son with Sarah, your wife, who's 90. You're going to have a son. And through him, I am going to build a nation. And the promise is going to begin to take shape before your eyes. Listen, there was no hope at all in Abraham's mind or in his body that God was ever going to be able to come through on this promise that he had made to him. But Paul is telling us here that he, against hope, believed in hope. That he held on to hope, even though the situation seemed hopeless. Everything in the scope of human reason says that you're crazy. But yet you still hold on and you say, no, God made a promise and he's going to make good on the promise that he made. He's the God of the hopeless situation. Whether it's Joseph who was sold into slavery and then brought into the prison system in Egypt, whom God made a promise saying that your brothers are going to bow down to you. He, against hope, believed in hope. And sure enough, that day, 22 years later, he sees his brothers all there to buy grain and they bow down before him and coming into his heart again for the first time, years after he had forgotten that the promise was even made, he sees the fulfillment of it as his brothers are bowing down before him. The God of all hope came through and performed the promise that he had made. Gideon was told with 300 men to go against an army of 120,000. A seemingly hopeless situation. How could God ever deliver 120,000 men into our hands with only 300 on our side? And yet Gideon blew the trumpet at the end of that battle and declared victory because the God of all hope is not bound by the seemingly impossible situations that are so heavy and so hard for us. God came through. Joshua was faced with the task of seeing these insurmountable, impenetrable walls pierced through by his nation as God declared and said, go in and take that city. The situation seems hopeless. How could it ever happen? These walls, nobody's ever been able to get through them. But yet the God of all hope came through and by marching around it, those times as God declared, those walls fell down and Jericho was delivered into the hands of the Israelites because the God of all hope comes through in a seemingly hopeless situation. Ruth and Naomi Elisha and Gehazi, the stories go on and on of hopeless situations where the God of all hope keeps his promise because he will not be indebted to man and he will keep and perform that which he has promised to do. But saving faith keeps hope in the presence of adversity. What seemingly hopeless situation do you find yourself facing tonight? What insurmountable wall is in front of you? Against all hope, do you believe in hope? Do you walk in the steps of faith? I'm challenged by this. I'm challenged by it. Is there anything that's too hard for God? Jeremiah chapter 32, verses 17, and then again in verse 27. Jeremiah first asks the question, he says, is anything too hard for God? And then God responds 10 verses later, and he says, I am the God of all flesh. There is nothing too hard for me. Nothing is too hard for God. Nothing is too hard for God. <clears throat> the second characteristic of Abraham's faith that Paul is challenging us to display as well is that saving faith doesn't put any value on the physical or human limitations. Verse 19. He says, And being not weak in faith... He considered not his own body now dead when he was about a hundred years old, 
neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He was almost 100, Sarah was almost 90, and it didn't even enter into his mind as God spoke to him that day that there are scientific rules that apply to all of mankind and what you're saying is going to happen, God, is can't happen because it's just impossible. We're talking about there's a human reproductive system and a biological makeup of the same and there's an intricate science involved and we are way beyond the years where, you know, This is going to work. I mean, it's just, it can't happen. We're just too old. It's gone. But Abraham saw beyond the mechanical science of it, and he saw the God that creates matter out of nothing, and that who invented the scientific model involved. And therefore, he realized that if this is the God that made this whole thing, then he's not bound by the deadness of Sarah's womb or by the fact that I'm 100 years old. He didn't look at the physical limitations. He didn't consider that God wasn't able to do it because man isn't able to do it. See, people think that if man isn't able, then that must mean that God isn't able. Joshua saw an opportunity to severely beat back the enemies of Israel, but he was limited by the setting of the sun. The day began to wax dim. The sun was beginning to set, and he knew that if he had just a couple more hours of daylight, he could push them back to a point where Israel would be secure, where they would be guarded against their enemies. And so knowing that God, who's the creator of time and space, that he's the one who made the scientific model, he calls out and he says, Son, stand thou still, not considering the limitations of the scientific model. And the day was extended on Joshua's behalf to the beating down of the enemies and to the recording in every culture of antiquity of either an extended day or an extended night because God, who's more powerful than the system that he made, stopped the the, the sun or the rotation of the earth and he caused the battle to be won. The king issued a threat. He said, for any that don't bow down and worship me, They'll be thrown into this burning, fiery furnace. And you know the story. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they have that rebellious heart that God gives to his servants when God is challenged in such a way as that. And the king is enraged when he sees these three boys who won't worship this idol. And he says, heat the furnace seven times hotter than it is wont to be heated. Heat that thing until it's glowing itself. We're going to burn these guys up. Now, you know, there's a scientific law here, you understand. I mean, it's just like rock, paper, scissors, right? I mean, you play rock, paper, scissors, you're, you're, you're like understanding great depths of science, right? The rock is stronger than the scissors. You know, the scissors is stronger than the paper. And listen, fire beats flesh. It's true every time you throw flesh into the fire, the flesh burns up. But these guys said, you know what? We know the God who made the flesh and made the fire. And he is able to deliver us from your hand, O king, and from this burning fiery furnace. They said, we're not going to worship and bow down to your golden statue. Throw us in the furnace. And you know the story. They're thrown in. And it says that there were four dancing within it. And when they came out, not only were they unharmed, but the ropes that bound them were burned off. And they didn't even smell like smoke. Amazing. Why? Because they didn't consider the physical and human limitations to be that which would keep them back. See, they weren't afraid. God able to deliver them. Faith sees past human limitations. It's a true story. There was an old preacher that was effective and fruitful throughout his life. And on his deathbed, he was there with a young preacher and he took him by the hand and the young preacher looked at the old preacher and he said, Sir, if you could give me one piece of advice that I could carry with me throughout the rest of my years that you have learned in yours, say it now. And the old preacher looked at the young preacher and he looked him right in the eye and he said, Son, God will alter natural law and human government when the name of Jesus is held before his throne. Don't ever put the physical limitations that you have or the human reasoning that the world holds to as a limitation before the hand of a holy God. Nothing is too hard for him. What physical limitation has you doubting tonight? Whether it's the scientific laws of the reproductive system or the mechanics of a troubled marriage or the number of hours in a day, 
or the economic laws of income must be greater than or equal to the budget. Whatever it is that is troubling you, God is greater than all these. And how much more when you add in the law of prayer and faith? That God says, ask. Yeah, I know we're out of time. I really wanted to share this story. I guess I won't. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we were uh, we're doing some minor landscaping, and uh, you know we're constantly burning stuff, and so we had this great big burn thing. Just me and one other guy. We were burning stuff like crazy. And, you know, wasn't paying attention to what I'm throwing in the fire. And it wasn't until my throat started to really hurt that I began to think, wait, I think there was a little bit of poison ivy in there. And there was actually a lot of poison ivy. And, uh, you know, I won't get into the whole thing of the story, but for some reason I had to be right up in there in the fire. And so I'm breathing in smoke like crazy, you know, and this whole thing is building up. And I've done this a hundred times and all of a sudden I'm sitting there later on and I'm like, man, my chest really hurts. And I thought, this is not good. So I go on the internet and I look, what happens when you breathe in the smoke of poison ivy? And the, every website um, and all the advice, all the experts had the, pretty much the same consensus. They said, go to the hospital. <laughs> That's what they said. If you feel a tightening in your chest, go to the hospital. So I'm like, oh man, I don't want to go to the hospital. This is crazy. So here's what I did. I thought, well, he's the God of all flesh. I turned my Bible to Mark chapter 16. And I know there that Jesus said that these signs shall follow those that believe. That they will cast out demons and they'll speak with new tongues. And if they take up serpents or drink any deadly thing, it shall not harm them. And so I read that verse out loud. I was by myself in my house and I read that verse out loud. And I said, God, please, I don't want to go to the hospital. You said that it wouldn't harm me. Could you cover me? And I'll tell you, I mean, I know, you know, you know what it's like when you're sitting in church or you're sitting somewhere and you know that God touches you. You know, you just feel the presence of God. I felt on both sides of my back and on both ankles, I felt God touch me. And I said, thank you. Thank you, Lord. And I woke up the next morning and I was fine. No problems. Now you could discount it and say, well, you just, you know, you were mistaken or something else. No, I really believe that God hears when we pray. And especially when we pray according to his word, according to his will. He's good. He's good. So what situation has you troubled? It says in verse 20 that Abraham staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief. But he was strong in faith, giving glory to God. Now to be fair, he did stagger. Abraham staggered through self-preservation. He staggered through self-reliance. He staggered with fear. He staggered with self-will and self-effort. He, he staggered with a lack of surrender and a lack of letting go. On one occasion, he begged God to do it his way rather than yielding to God's way. He staggered in many ways. But in one way, the Bible says that Abraham did not stagger. Is that his faith in the true and powerful living God never wavered. He never staggered in his faith. He never looked back to his old life. He never stopped pursuing God. He never stopped daily growing closer in his relationship with his father. Regardless of his struggles and where he did stagger and fail, there were two things that always marked the man's life that we're reading about here. The tent and the altar. Everywhere he went, he did two things. He pitched a tent and he built an altar. The tent spoke of his life and relationship with this world, and the altar spoke with, of his relationship with the next. And that was always with him, no matter where he went. But his feet were positioned and set in a way where he knew where he was going, and he never wavered in his pursuit of God. And therefore, it says in verse 22, that it was imputed to him for righteousness. That this faith that this man had, that he hoped in the hopeless situation, that he didn't count on the physical limitations of God, but he trusted him no matter what. And he staggered not through unbelief that this resulted in his righteousness, that God imputed it unto him for righteousness. In verse 21, it says that he was fully persuaded that what God promised he was able to perform. A full persuasion that the things that were promised and spoken are true. How about in your own life? You say, Nick, that's exactly my issue. That's exactly my problem. 
You just read it. You said right there in verse 21 that he was fully persuaded that what God promised he was able to perform. I have that. I believe that. I believe that God will perform everything that he says. My problem is this, that I'm not convinced that he'll do it for me. I believe that he can. I'm just not sure if he will. I believe that he's able. But is he really willing to do it? Paul knew they would be thinking this. And so he says in verse 23, now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for us also to whom it shall be imputed. If we believe on him that raised up Jesus, our Lord from the dead. See, this is exactly Paul's point as he's concluding is that Abraham was just a common man in a satanic city who chose to believe the promises of God. How can it get any more common than that? How about you and me? We think, well, who am I? I'm just, who am I? I'm nobody. I'm just, nobody cares about me except me. You know, why would God care about me? Why would God want to do these things? Well, why would God care about Abraham? Why Abraham? Why David? Why any of the people? There was no reason. It's just grace. The real issue is, do you believe it? Do you believe that God cares about you? All of the promises apply to all that believe. So you must choose to either believe and then leave as though it's already done. That even though maybe it's a long way off, but yet you position your life in such a way as though it's already done. Amazing. Faith must be active. Faith must be active. Passive faith makes a profession. But active faith requires action. Passive faith is based on knowledge, but active faith is based on experience and doing. Passive faith believes that Jesus walked on water, but active faith steps out and does it when he calls, like Peter did. Passive faith believes in God as part of a life, but active faith pursues him and doesn't back down. Action is the evidence of genuine faith. So do you really believe? The worship team can come. Lori. What's troubling you tonight? What's troubling you right now? What situation is it that's in your heart that won't leave you alone? That it just That's what comes back when you're by yourself or when, when you get to be alone. What is that thing that's troubling you that's in your mind, in your heart? David said in Psalm 37, verse 25, he says, I have been young and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken nor his seed begging bread. He said, over the course of my whole life, I have looked and I have never seen God fail in his promise to provide for his people. That in every instance, he has come through every time and there's never been a time that God lacked. Has there ever been a time in your life that God didn't come through? Then what's the trouble? What are you worried about? Psalm 138 verse 8 says that he will perfect that which concerns me. That it's a promise of God upon your life that he is working and that he's going to complete the work. Philippians 1.6 That he who began a good work will be faithful to complete it. Yes, the question, well, am I going to make it to heaven? Am I really going to get there? I mean, am I really going to gather and obtain this righteousness that comes by faith? John chapter 8 verse 9, Jesus said, I am the door. If by me any man enter in, he shall be saved, and he shall go in and out and find pasture. Do you believe it? First John chapter 5, verse 13 says, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. Do you believe? Is there feet underneath your faith? Is your life positioned in a way that you're pursuing God in the way that Abraham was? The Bible says that if you have that kind of faith, that the righteousness of God through Jesus Christ is imputed and laid to your account. That you're a believer in Christ. It's evidenced by your life and you will be saved. That you can stand assured before God 
that you're a possessor of his eternal inheritance. Father, we just pray that you would fill us with faith. That, Lord, where we're lacking, where in some way, Lord, we're doubting, where we can grasp it intellectually, but yet we have yet to come into that full persuasion of our own. Lord, we say with that centurion, help our unbelief. Lord, we know that we can't be saved by any righteous work that we have done. It's only by your grace, your faith. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give us the faith and that you would help us, Lord. Lord, though we stagger in many ways, may we never stagger in our belief of you. Lord, work in our lives right now. We call upon that promise, Lord, that you'll finish the work that you started. So do your work in us, Lord. Your servants are here listening, waiting upon you. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. Let's all stand.